0: Welcome to the Y-Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. What were you doing when you were 24? Well, my guest this week founded his first investment management company. His name is Simon Rogerson. That company was Octopus Investments. He then went on to start Octopus Renewables, Octopus Ventures, Octopus Energy, Octopus Wealth and Octopus Real Estate. He is a serial entrepreneur and was a joy to talk to. We discuss how he started his career, the purpose of his businesses, his disdain for jargon and bureaucracy, which are rife in the investment management and energy sectors. We also discuss what he looks for when he's hiring people, the values of his business and how he and his team have achieved b Corp status. Before listening, I'd really recommend checking out their website at octopusgroup.com. He is a rock star. In the entrepreneurial world. So, without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Simon Rogerson, welcome to the podcast. Simon, how did you start your career?
1: Uh, well, if we go right back to the very beginning, my first job was actually door to door sales for a company called Betterware, where I went locally in the neighborhood I used to live in selling household appliances and equipment. Uh, this was before I started at university. And then I went from that job to my degree. I went up to St. Andrews University to read French, but actually largely to play golf. And then after I graduated from St. Andrews, I joined a very large fund management company called Mercury Asset Management, which became Merrill Lynch Investment Managers, is now part of BlackRock. And I was there for about two and a bit years. Uh, It was a brilliant business full of really smart people, including the smartest person I've ever worked with. To this day, actually, 25 years later, a guy called Pete Davis, who was just exceptional Met some fantastic businesses, met some fantastic chief executives. But um, for me, after probably a couple of years of working there, it felt a bit like Groundhog Day. So I remember almost every day at the same time, it was about one o'clock, I used to look at my watch, not to really to see what the time was, but to see how long I had left. And I wanted something new, I wanted something different. So I think rather naively looking back on it, three of us at the time resigned from Mercury when we were still on the graduate training scheme to set up Octopus. And that was. That was 21 and a half
0: years ago. So Octopus was new and Octopus is different. What were you trying to do with Octopus back in 2000 when you started it? And what was the sort of value proposition?
1: I think if I look back right to the very beginning, I mean, when people ask me, say, why did you set up Octopus? I think the, you know, the genuine answer is actually largely naivety. We didn't really know any better. I think at the time we set Octopus up, financial services was the least trusted industry in the world. And that was 21 years ago. And if you look at the Endelman Trust Index, it would tell you that financial services 21 years later is still the least trusted industry in the world. You know, since the financial crisis, I think the banks and the investment companies have paid out more than 300 billion dollars in fines for inappropriate behavior and not treating their customers fairly. And that, in our view, needed fixing. So we wanted to build a very different kind of investment company, a very different kind of financial services company. And over the journey of the last 21 years, about five, six years ago, we also decided to go into the energy sector. And that coincidentally is the second least trusted uh, industry in the world and has been consistent for the last few decades. And these are industries that are typically defined by a whole heap of complexity. So they're very difficult for normal people to understand, whether that's the bill as an energy customer or the brochure for an investor in a fund because they tend to use jargon and they tend to use language that is not easily understood and if you can't understand something you definitely can't trust them so we wanted to have a very different a very fresh approach to investing where we did what exactly what we say we're going to do where we explain things really clearly and we removed as much of the friction as was possible and I hope that's what we've achieved over that time period
0: well we'll come back to energy and we'll come back to particularly your work in the renewable space but staying on the sort of financial services side. Why do you think it is so untrusted? And, you know, is it related to the complexity? Is it related to higher returns that's generated in financial services? What do you think the sort of root cause of mistrust in the industry is?
1: I think the language that people use is is unnecessarily complicated. So if you, you know, if you picked up a a, a one pager on a typical financial services product, an investment product, that one page you might talk about the European stability mechanism might talk about pair trading, alpha correlation. And these are all terms that normal people do not understand. I mean, we have an internal thing at Octopus that we call the granny and granddad test, which is you're not allowed to send any piece of communication out to a customer if a granny or granddad who had not worked in financial services wouldn't understand it. And that seems pretty basic because if you can't understand something, you definitely can't trust it. I think that's the first problem. I think the second problem is I think often the incentives are wrong. Often for public companies, large companies, they will define their success through a single lens. And that single lens is profit. And so they will be self-interested. They will be selfish. They will make decisions and take actions that are for, in their own interests rather than their clients' interests. And that creates uh, the wrong incentive. Often the, the incentives for management teams are too short termist and they're based off the bottom line of that business rather than the happiness of the customers, or the loyalty of those customers. And so it breeds this cycle of behaviour, which uh, isn't okay. And when the customer has been on the receiving end of that for years and years and years, then they they start the conversation and they start the relationship being sceptical, understandably, and being cynical. And that I
0: think is a real problem and a real issue. So how can you help tackle that incentive sort of argument and try and help to align the incentives of your clients you, yourselves, um, and your employees?
1: Uh, okay, so um, I think there are there are lots, lots of things you can do. For, I mean, so um, the first thing is you can make sure that all the people working in your business are shareholders. So I think owners of a business behave differently. I think they're more accountable to one another and to the end customer. I think they will hold the management team to account about not just what it does, but how it behaves. And I think great business is really simple. I think great business is simply about how you make your customers feel. And I think your incentive structures for your employees, how you pay people, how you reward them, should be based around those behaviours. And in our case, we have a really simple nine box grid. And on the y-axis, we have the kind of what you do. So your functional skills where you're able to score a one, a two or a three, one being the best, three being the worst. And on the x-axis, we have how and that is your behaviours, it's your values and you score an A, a B or a C. And clearly you want to be an A1 But if you're a C1, i.e. what you've done has been fantastic, but how you've done it is not being great and you've demonstrated the wrong values, the wrong behaviours, then you probably won't last very long at Octopus because that's not the kind of person we want. So I think the incentives, the people you reward, the people you promote, the infrastructure that's in place is really important. And I do think there are real benefits to being a private company. Being a private company allows you to make decisions over the very long term and not place as much regard to the interests of your shareholders versus other stakeholders for that business i mean one of the things that's quite different about octopus is about six months ago we became accredited as a b corporation and a b corp is so companies like patagonia or ben and jerry's ice cream are b corps and what b corps have done is they have changed their articles of association the articles of association are things that govern how that business is how your business is run uh, they've changed that so in, you know, in all, almost all cases, companies, you legally have to put the interests of your shareholders first. Now, B Corps have chosen to change those articles to say that actually we're going to put the interests of all our stakeholders on an equal footing. And that is your employees, it's your customers, it's your community, it's the environment, it's your shareholders. So you run the business in a very different way. And it's much easier to do that as a private company than it is a public company, where typically investors are judging you largely through the lens of profit. And when you have to make every decision based around profit, it means you tend to behave in a certain kind of way. And that's not normally in the same way you would as a private company where you can take a longer term view.
0: Tell me about the application for becoming a B Corp. Is it B Corp accreditation? Is it a UK based thing? Or is it a global thing?
1: Uh, It's a global thing. There are about 3,000 companies around the world that have done it. They're all signing up to, I guess, redefine what success looks like for a business, which is its broader contribution to society and all the stakeholders it serves. If I compare the process, it's a bit like doing the most complicated tax return in the world. So it took us 18 months to go through that process you have to score above 80 to be accredited as a B Corp. And this is on all kinds of levels. I think the average company, the median company in the UK would score about 52. And we scored 94.2. But for us, there's a you know there's miles still to go. Patagonia, I think, scores about 150. And this is how you treat your communities, how you treat the environment, your shareholders, your employees, your customers. It just has a very different lens about what defines success for a business. And this, I think, is is a really key point and something that I've really thought long and hard about over the last four or five years. I have three children, so I speak to my children about, you know, the kind of companies they might want to work for. And broadly, I think, the, you know, the, the old world of maybe I'm going to become a banker, an accountant, a lawyer, and I'm going to earn lots of money. I think that's been replaced by people saying, look, I want to work for, I want to buy from, and I want to invest with good companies. And I say good almost in inverted commas, you know, because I think people instinctively know what a good company looks like. And that is about how they treat the world around them. And that, I think, is absolutely key. And I think, you know, the, the companies that generate the best returns for their investors over the coming decades... Will be the companies that get this they instinctively do the right thing for all these different stakeholders that's where you're going to generate the best returns. They are the companies people are going to want want to work for, and they are the companies people want to be customers of and that I think is absolutely key that you know the old world of having to make a choice between doing good and making money. That is very old-fashioned, and I don't believe it anymore. To make the best returns, you need to invest in the best companies, and that's with a different lens. That's not just about profitability. It's about their view of the world and how they approach things.
0: Are B Corps then the sort of destination for this enormous wave of ESG and impact investing that has sort of swept through our industry? Um, is the sort of codification and certification of these, I suppose, what are they, values or tests the end point of ESG investment?
1: Uh, I would say the very short answer to that is I would say yes, because I think, you know, that that one of the problems, and this is a typical, so the whole ESG impact, sustainability, responsible investment wave that's happening, which I think is fantastic. But um, unfortunately, financial services has done this in the way that financial services normally does. So what they've done is they've turned the impact and the story and the change you can bring about in the world. They change it from being a story and people remember stories because it's exciting and it's interesting and it it plays to your emotion and the heart. They've turned it into something which just exists in people's brains. So they've turned impact into this Excel spreadsheet where they measure tons of carbon or number of trees or all kinds of things which are really difficult to engage with and really difficult to understand. And I think for B Corp, it has the foundation based around data, but it also requires you to bring it to life and um, to behave in a certain kind of way. And I think it is behaviour and it is stories that will change the world around you because it's the stories that people remember. That's what drives a change in people's behaviour. And I think B Corp does it as well as anybody, actually. The process itself is quite arduous, but I think coming out the other end is a badge people are really proud of. You know, tens of thousands of companies would like to be B Corps, but only 3,000 so far globally have met the standard that's required. And it's an independent standard. It's independently accredited. Uh, You go through that accreditation process every two years, and it's been around for quite a long time. And in the ESG impact responsible investing world, there are loads of different bodies emerging left, right and centre, all requiring slightly different things. And I think B Corp has a bit more history and a bit more standardisation around what it does. And so I think, yes, it, it is. Whether it's the final destination, it's definitely one of them. And I'd encourage anyone sitting on the fence thinking about it to get on with it. It's a tough process, but I think it's well worth it.
0: Tell me, going back to the sort of investment side of your your business and when you're looking at, for new investments and you're sort of scowling the globe for great entrepreneurs, what are you looking for? Are you backing the product, the process or or, or the people? What's your sort of secret source?
1: I think the secret source uh, is, you know, and this is me speaking. So what do I think? I think the most important thing is the person who is running the business. So I love people that bleed electricity they bleed electricity they bleed energy all over the table there is no getting around the fact that building a business requires a huge amount of hard work and sacrifice and you have to be prepared to do that so you need very high energy levels you need a mindset that is permanently thinking about how big the fish could be so your version of events of what you could build is bigger than probably anyone else's and you have to believe that and you have to take other people on that journey with you And I also look for something which is something I I term, it's not an official term, but I term kind of permanently disappointed syndrome. And I suffer from this a little bit. It doesn't make me miserable, doesn't make me sad. But permanently disappointed syndrome is about always thinking you do things faster, you can do things better, you can do things quicker. Because I think in the right entrepreneurs, they're just restless and they always think there's more that could be achieved. And then I think the personality and the values of the person and the leader flows through into the wider organisation. So for me... Humility is absolutely key. There's always a ratio I use when I'm hiring people, which is the ratio of how good you think you are divided by how good you really are. And if that ratio is ever more than one, I think you're unemployable. They're not nice people to work with. And actually, bizarrely, the financial services industry is full of people where that ratio is out of kilter. I like people who actively seek out feedback and they listen to other people. And then the last one, I'd say people that do the right thing, even when no one is watching. So I just, you've been wired, you've been brought up in a certain kind of way. And that's just you kind to other people, whether that's your employees, whether it's your customers. And I think that goes a long way. And it's kind of uh, undervalued as a skill in business kindness, because, it you know, business often is seen as kind of some kind of war. I think Phil Knight, the guy that ran Knight, described it as like a knife fight in a phone box or war without bullets. And I think that's kind of very 1980s. That's not the way business should be, I think. I think business has a responsibility beyond just paying the wages of its employees, whether it's about the wellness and well-being of the employees or the wider community it serves. Back to the same point, back to the B Corp point. You have to think about business through that lens, I think. And if you do, I think you have the opportunity to build a really, really valuable
0: company. It's quite interesting this, because I mean, you've got a very clear sort of identity at Octopus and you can see it. Yeah, I would recommend anyone check out your website and the, your web of subsidiaries, but there is a very clear identity and clear sort of set of values. Has it always been like that? How, how long does it take to develop a set of values as sort of entrenched as yours? Or do you set out on day one, whatever it was in the year 2000, you say, OK, look, these are my non-negotiables. I'm going to build a business this is what I hold dear. Everyone else can bugger off.
1: Yeah, do you know what? I think that's, that is a fantastic question. And, and I'll be very genuine in, in my answer. So uh, I think the values, we didn't articulate the values as we'd articulate them now. But the, the values were always there and it's the personality of the founders. And I think that's very genuine throughout the business. But it, being really honest, when we were kind of 23, 24 years old selling out the business and we really didn't know what we were doing, it was more than anything. It was about survival. So, you know, I'll I'll tell you a a slightly funny story. So, you know, I used to work at Mercury Asset Management. Mercury had a, the sixth floor was where you had all your meetings with companies. That sixth floor had you know, carpet that was thick enough to lose your shoes in. It had Monets on the wall, Picassos on the wall. It had butlers with tails and white gloves who would bring you teas and coffees on silver platters. It was that environment. And we went from there to our first office, which was above the Costco supermarket in next to Farringdon Tube Station. And we shared that office with a company called BigTelly.com, which is still alive today, actually, 21 years later, which rents out plasma screen TVs and has the highest proportion of employees with facial tattoos anywhere in the world. <laughs> and that knocks all the sense of entitlement and humility out of you. And when you first set the business up, it is about survival. And it's about, you know, it's about raising the money. We spent nine months cold calling people using the yellow pages to try and raise the two million pounds we needed to get the business off the ground because we, we didn't have any money because we were 24 years old. And you go from there to getting regulated, to launching your first product, to getting your first customer, a guy called Mr. Gower, who I called up on the day we got his application to thank him and inadvertently frightened the life out of him being our first customer. And, you know, he's invested another 10 times since then, so which is fantastic. But it really is about survival. And it took me about a decade to work out actually actually it was no longer about survival octopus become quite a big business quite profitable business and it it wasn't about hitting the next target whether it's funds under management or profitability or anything else we were setting it's about looking through the business through this different lens this lens of b corp this lens of the wider stakeholders about building a business i can look back on and say i was part of building that and i'm really proud i want i want a business i can talk to my grandkids about and that's a very different lens and for me that didn't happen until i was in my mid-30s and I'm not sure i changed change any of that, actually, because I think we needed the survival instinct and the very determined, very competitive octopus in the early days. And now I think we have a slightly different definition of success, which I think is, a, is much bigger, has a much bigger purpose, gets people much more excited. But it's been a natural evolution for us. But I don't think the values have changed. The personality of the business hasn't changed. I think just where we've spent our energy has.
0: And moving on to octopus energy and actually octopus renewables, which I, I know the two companies have merged, what I normally ask. Our entrepreneurs as, you know, what problem were you trying to solve? And I think that's probably quite an obvious question to ask uh, with Octopus Energy. But how did you feel that you could do it better than your competitors? What did you think that you could bring to the energy sector, to the renewable sector that your competitors simply weren't doing?
1: Uh, yeah, I'll give you a bit of background to this first. So, it was, you know, I think there's always serendipity. There's always a, a whole bunch of luck in building a business. And, and we've been very lucky over the last uh, 20 or so years. But I met a guy called Stuart Quickenden, who um, ran a Boston Consulting Group in London. And he came in to see me and I said, look, we're thinking about building something in the energy, building a business in the energy space, because we think there are lots of parallels with financial services. It's broken. Things aren't explained particularly well. Customers get a raw deal. They kind of get brought in in one tariff, and when the customer's not looking, the tariff gets hiked up. Uh, There's no digital experience. It all feels a bit broken. And um, he introduced me to a few people, and one of the people he introduced me to was a guy by the name of Greg Jackson and Greg Jackson is the founder and the CEO of Octopus Energy. And literally, within five minutes of meeting Greg, no exaggeration, within five minutes, I said to him, what do you want to do? And he said, I'd love to build an energy business. I said, fantastic. Come and build it at Octopus then. This is the non-negotiable. This is what we care about. And it's about the customer. The customer must come first. You cannot build Ryanair for energy. You must build Octopus for energy, which means look after the customer, love them, hold them, squeeze them, remove all the friction, give them a fair price always, and look after them and, you know, build the kind of company where, if I, you know, for example, if I said to you, okay, Douglas, tell me about you, you probably explain that uh, here's who you are, you're married, you have two kids, and, and you, you, you put this kind of metaphorical wall around your family. And very occasionally, you let new people inside that circle. And very, very occasionally, you let brands inside that circle. That's what we're trying to build. A company that's so loved by its customers that people proactively recommend it to the people around them. That's what gets me excited. And in Greg, we found that person. That was the non-negotiable. So, you know, what we were trying to do is we're trying to use technology to accelerate the world's transition to renewable energy and to make it faster and cheaper for literally tens and tens of millions of people. And that business already serves 17 million account holders it looks after. Two and a half million customers in the UK It grows by about 100,000 customers every single month. It's a kind of express train. And it's an express train because the rest of the industry isn't using technology the right way. Um, You know, so Kraken, which is the name of our operating platform, has been licensed by Eon. And if I give you an example, Eon, I think when we first did the licensing deal with them, I think their customers scored them as 1.4 out of 5 on Trustpilot. And 11 months after they started the migration onto Kraken system, they scored 4.4 out of 5. And, you know, you've got the CEO saying it's the best migration in the history of the industry. That's exciting that we can bring renewable energy to millions and millions of households. Climate change is the number one societal issue that needs fixing. And Octopus Energy is absolutely in the middle of that. For us, it will be a a once-in-a-generation opportunity. I don't think I will ever see the same opportunity for a business to change an industry. Energy industry is the largest industry in the world. It's worth $2 trillion. And Octopus is absolutely the epicenter of that in the UK, now in Germany, in Japan, in Australia, in New Zealand, in America. And it will just keep entering new countries almost month by month. So it's enormously exciting, but it's the same drivers as in financial services. Enormous frustration from the customers not getting a fair deal, And the difference with energy is you have this whole climate ticking time bomb sitting over the top. Something has to be done. And I think, you know, increasingly back to people want to work from buy for invest with good companies. People recognize that if you're not doing a bit for the environment, customers or employees will vote with their feet as they should do.
0: I mean, isn't this capitalism working brilliantly? Because, you know, you had these massive incumbents, both in the financial space and in the energy space that were probably sitting on their laurels, generating super high returns, then all of a sudden, technology comes along, and brings down those barriers, and they've been seen to be pretty flat footed. I mean, two questions. One, why have the incumbents been so flat-footed and why haven't they been you know, more on the front foot with the investment in technology? And then uh, just a question on branding. You say that you want to try and bring brands into the circle of sort of identity. When you look at other brands, do you look around, not necessarily in, in your own sort of space, brands that you really look up to and want to sort of emulate?
1: Perfect. Right. Uh, two great questions. Thank you. I think the first one was, why have they been so flat-footed? It's enormously, if you think about the businesses that are most able to cope with change, the businesses most able to cope with change are little companies because they don't have this big legacy. So, you, get, you know, it's in the history of time, it just gets, keeps repeating itself. So if you look at what happened when electric EVs, electric cars came on the scene, you know, eventually, after real pushing and shoving, uh, eventually the big car manufacturers went from a combustion engine to a hybrid. Well, the really naughty ones uh, rigged the air emissions data so that they could pretend they were better than they really were. That's very typical behaviour for companies which behave almost sociopathically because they're, again, so focused on the bottom line. But eventually it takes someone like Musk to come along and say, no, this is the new normal and I'm not going to stop. I'm either going to have to be incapacitated or dead or I'm not going to stop until every single vehicle in the world is electric. So he drags these companies kicking and screaming into this new world. And when change happens to you, it's very unpleasant. At the same time, back to why the incumbents struggle with it, why would they say flat? Flat-footed, They're typically quoted companies, and those quoted companies get judged on their earnings. And what they really needed to do is to say, do you know what? We've got this great big legacy business with legacy systems and legacy everything, and it's really, really bloody difficult to change. What I need to do is use some of my cash flow to set up a business down the road based around technology, and to protect it from the mothership. So keep it at arm's length, have it just report to one person. Don't let people interfere with it and give them the mandate that says, it's your job to put me out of business as quickly as you possibly can. And that's a very, very brave thing to do. It would have been very brave for the banks to do it, very brave for the energy companies to do it. But that's what they should have done. Personally, I think a business like Eon uh, that said, you know what, we're going to back Kraken and we're going to use Kraken, we're going to do this. They, they deserve every bit of success that they're getting currently because it required a bold decision to say, that's what I'm going to do. And they're now reaping the rewards. But for an existing business where actually they're back to the shells and profitability is everything, making the call that says, I'm going to spend hundreds of millions of pounds building this new business. Uh, I'm going to do it with new people and they're going to be protected from the mothership and you're not allowed to go near them or interfere. That is really difficult Mm. to do and it's really difficult to do innovation. The thing that makes me smile sometimes is these great big companies uh, have someone with a job title of head of innovation Mm. sitting in this great big (laughs) company. I mean, that's the worst job in the world. You absolutely cannot deliver it because you have whole departments or people paid to stop the business taking risk. And you can't build something new if that's the environment. Every time we build a new business, we build it outside of our head office. And we do that very deliberately. And they report at arm's length to a single person, and we build them and protect them. And they're allowed to take anything they want from the mothership, but the mothership can't interfere with them, because otherwise you can't move at the speed you need to move at. And I think your second question was about other brands that I think, do something really special. And this might just be my midlife crisis coming out now. But uh, the, one, the one that I'm going to talk about, actually, is I'm going to talk about Peloton. Because uh, I think Peloton has done something remarkable. So I think they're defining what kind of the new normal is of fitness, of gym, of engagement, and connection with customers, and making people feel part of a community. And And that's the real power. I mean, you saw it in all kinds of things, people are tribal in how they think, whether that's on a on a country basis, on a football team, whether it's the church, whether it's a business, whether it's a community, a fitness, anything like that. And Peloton has built this whole community. And I think they've done it absolutely
0: brilliantly. Simon, what policies or procedures do you put in place in your businesses to make sure that you're not that flat-footed incumbent? And I know you've talked about removal from the mothership. What else can you do to promote you know, innovation and to make sure that you, you know, don't get left behind?
1: Okay, again, so this is something I feel quite strongly about. And I think I put this at the door, this failing at the door of the education system. So I think the education system, probably globally, actually, but certainly in the UK, just squashes all kinds of imagination out of children. So they encourage kind of rote learning where you need to go and revise the same things. And failure becomes something which is bad. And then you go, you know, from big red crosses on your work, and then you hire people into your business and typically in financial services, they're roughly the same kind of person. They've never failed at anything in their life, probably not even failed their driving test. They've done well at school, they've done well at university, they've become accountants, they've passed all these exams. And for me, it's not really the risk of failure. It's the risk of embarrassment. That's what scares them. They hate looking foolish or silly in front of their colleagues. And for me, that's just entirely wrong. So if you're not prepared to make mistakes, you're not trying very hard. You're not going to advance very quickly as a business. So I've made literally hundreds and hundreds of mistakes and I'd say am I immune to those mistakes I normally have to make the same mistake twice before I remember not to make it a third time but it really helps because you take all those lessons you learn and you apply them to the next thing and the thing is not to get hung up on those mistakes not to feel embarrassed by them so you know when we do make mistakes as a business we we talk about them quite openly and we share them and if I make a mistake personally then I will definitely share and explain to people like this is what I got wrong this is why I think I got it wrong and this is what we'll try to avoid it next time and for me, it's just removing the stigma that's associated with failure. And, th- and that's so important because, you know, the education system, I think, has a lot to answer for. It gets that bit wrong. And then it doesn't teach people the skills they actually need in life. So whether it's about mental health, wellness, relationships, financial literacy, they're not really on the curriculum. They can tell you who won the battle of 1066, but they can't tell you anything that actually matters. And that's a problem. And I think it, you know, business has to try and un- unravel that and give people the confidence to go out there, try new things and mess a few things up. That's okay. It doesn't matter.
0: Where do you think government sits in this transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy? What role should government play? Or do you think government should sort of back out and and leave it to the private sector?
1: Uh, no, I think you've got to do everything together, right? So charities do a whole lot to try and accelerate the, the changes that are needed in a society, whether it's inequality, whether it's climate change. Governments also, they create the framework, actually, that businesses play within. And I, I think that's really important. I, I do agree with you that I think the big change and the big driver has to come from business itself. They have the resources. They have the capital. They can affect the most change. And entrepreneurs, ultimately, are the agents of change. But governments have a role to play. And i use one example, which was you know our energy business. We went to the government. When we first came into the market after being there about 18 months or so, we looked at the pricing tactics of the what were then the big six energy companies, and we uh, unveiled something we call tease and squeeze, where energy companies would bring customers in on one tariff, and then about 12 months later, they typically hike that tariff by about 30 40% when the customer wasn't looking and it will be buried somewhere on page two or three of the terms and conditions. And that is just not the way to behave. You know, if, if those companies were people, no one would be friends with them. They'd be in the corner of the room facing the other way. And I don't think that's okay. So we took it to the government and we said, look, uh, we took it to the press and we said, here's what's going on and everything else. And the government got behind it. And that's where the energy price cap came from, which is to make sure the difference between the best tariff you offered your customers and your variable tariff was only a certain amount. So that people... Customers, Typically, very loyal customers weren't being taken advantage of. Now, it's painful that the government or the regulator or you know, the financial conduct authority in the world of financial services has to get involved and has to be the conscience of these businesses. But often that is the case. So I think absolutely the government has a role to play in that and um, whether it's kickstarting the UK's investment into solar or whether it's thinking about electric heat pumps or the electrification of transport or heating these are all going to happen they have to happen and the change needs to be quick uh, and it needs to be radical and governments absolutely have a role to play in that
0: where do you think the UK government sits relative to its international peers say the America
1: uh, I think they're very good actually. I think the UK has the most advanced and most regulated energy market probably in the world. So the lovely thing for Octopus Energy is this becomes almost the testbed of forward thinking energy. And I think that's again why, you know, Octopus Energy now has two industry shareholders in it, Origin Energy invested largest energy company in Australia invested, most likely Tokyo Gas, largest energy company in Japan invested. And they did that because they can, you know, they scoured the globe saying, who is the company that can help us transform most quickly to this new future of renewable energy and how we do things? And they chose Octopus. And so I think, uh, you know, the reason, part of the reason they did that is because the framework we're playing within and what the UK allows us to do. So I think it's, you know, it's definitely something the, the UK leads on, actually. I think it's really powerful.
0: Changing tide. When you're hiring your sort of analysts and your associates who are sort of coming out of university, what are you looking for? What's the sort of hiring process? What advice would you give to that cohort to make sure that they're sort of pointing in the right direction and put themselves head and shoulders above their competition?
1: Well, the first bit of advice, I will answer your question, but the first bit of advice is I would say go and set your own company up when you ask somebody what you know why if you not set your own company up they always give you one of two reasons the first is i haven't had the idea yet which i always think is a cop-out and you can steal someone else's idea and just execute it better so i, I don't buy that one uh, and the other reason is people say well, i've got too much to lose because often people will be married and they'll have children or wives or husbands and I, that one i agree with that's difficult you know we set up a, a program on octopus called octopus springboard designed to encourage people to leave octopus with our backing take our money go and build a business and if it doesn't work they can come back again to their old job. And we did that just to encourage entrepreneurship. But for people right at the very start of their career, they literally have nothing to lose and they will learn so much more. I've learned more in 20 years than I would think I would have done lifetimes working at an investment management company, just an investment company or an energy company, because you're building it yourself. And, you know, I've got three children. I love my children to bits. And Octopus comes a very close second to how I think about my children. Having your own business just is just a totally different mindset. So that would be my biggest bit of advice. But for the people who are thinking about going into uh, the world of investments, you, you've got to do something you love. Right. So the first thing, if you want to be successful, you're gonna to have to work really, really hard that's a fact. So, you know, the whole decision about, you know, whole conversation about work-life balance and getting that bit right, I don't really agree with that. So I think if you find something you absolutely love, then it doesn't feel like work because you, you genuinely love it. Now, it turned out I didn't love uh, being a fund manager, which is why I kept looking at my watch at one o'clock every day. But you've got to find what your, where your passion is. So when you find your passion, stick with it and you'll be successful. If you can find your passion and have your own business in that industry, you'll be super successful. But for the people that want to go into investments then you've got to be inquisitive. You've got to be people that love finding things out. When, when someone says to me, like, how do you make money out of equities? Uh, you know, the smart ass will say, buy low, sell high. But really, you make money out of equities by knowing something that no one else knows. And the only way you find that out is by really hard work. You've got to speak to suppliers. You've got to speak to customers. Don't hide behind some kind of macroeconomics or I'll be underweight this and overweight that. Go and find out the fundamentals, which is why, for me, investing in smaller companies is the way to make the most money. Because I can find something out about a smaller company that I can't find out about a big company. I couldn't tell you a single thing about AstraZeneca if I spent the next six months looking at it that the market doesn't already know because it's got 300 super smart, well-paid people covering it. Uh, and I can't tell you anything that will make the share price move. I could look at a little company worth 30, 40, 50 million pounds. I can definitely find something out the market doesn't know. And that's the inefficiency. And that's what I want to take advantage of. So people thinking about investing, make sure you're passionate about it. And I'll just be very, very inquisitive and never stop asking questions. Never stop asking why. And again, that, that kind of gets knocked out of as we as we get older. Little children, people with little children, little children ask why all the time to the point of massive irritation. But as people get older, they stop questioning and they just accept that's the way it should be. And that's sad, I think, because then the world doesn't evolve as quickly as it should.
0: Well, I wonder then, Simon, so, mean, you should have a third dimension on your employee sort of KPI sheet. You should have how, uh, you should have what, and then maybe you should have why and introduce a why dimension.
1: For me, that gets covered under the how. We try and, you know, we have growth squads when we're looking at new products and that could be new products that are getting launched. It could be processes that are getting challenged. So yeah, absolutely, that is a big part of the values and behaviors we want to see because you want people who question and very often the people that are best placed to do that are the people that are closest to the customer and they're often the people at the start of their career where they'll they'll see what's going on, they'll hear what's going on. They're in a position to make changes and often it will be the people in the middle of the organisation who've been there a certain period of time and they think there's a set way of doing things and they're less able to change. So, yeah, I'm entirely with you. Why is always a good question.
0: Final question, Simon. Um, if you were able to talk to yourself as a 20 year old selling, going door to door, what advice would you give to yourself just starting out?
1: Oh, I think I would have, I would give myself the advice. So I feel honestly, I feel like one of the luckiest men in the world. Uh, And I feel particularly lucky because, you know, I've been part of building Octopus. And I'm a big part of that company. My advice to anyone that ages, if you ever wake up thinking about building your own business and wanting to do your own thing, there is literally no excuse, you should do it. And even if you try and fail, you'll be more valuable to another employer. And do not get to the age of 50 or 60 or 70, where you're hanging up your boots, looking back with a regret, thinking, oh, my goodness, I wish I'd I wish I'd done that. You hardly ever regret the things you do. You regret the things you don't do. You know, I feel very lucky. I almost fell into entrepreneurship and building businesses. But my advice to my 18 or 19-year-old self would be go and work for yourself. And that might be three, four, five years learning from other people and then going to do it. And I might have chosen to do that in a slightly more entrepreneurial environment than Mercury Asset Management Fund Management Company. That would be my biggest bit of advice. It's what I tell my children. It's what I tell my friends. It's what I tell everyone at Octopus. If if you're itching to do your own thing, just do it. Apply for Octopus Springboard. We'll give you the money. Go for it because there's no better drug from a business standpoint than going to build your own company.
0: Simon Rogerson, thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening to the Y Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton and our guest this week, Simon Rogerson, if you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, well, why not like it or subscribe to it? and At least tell your friends about it. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.